0: We'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been teaching a series for the last uh, number of weeks on overcoming offenses. And we've been using uh, the fourth chapter of Ephesians, the last couple of verses of the chapter, as a a text scripture. And just for continuity, we'll start there again. Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost to the church and and makes a remarkable statement by the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, we'll start reading in verse... um, Well, let's just start in verse 29 I guess, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It says, "'Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers.'" So God cares about the way we talk, amen? Verse 30, "'And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God.'" So our talking has something to do with the work of God in our lives. "'And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption.'" let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another isn't it interesting that god would have to tell christians to be kind to each other you would think that would be a given we're part of the same family that you would think that uh, since we all have the love of god in us that would just be the normal way of operation but apparently not he said and be ye kind one to another tender hearted not hard hearted but tender hearted forgiving one another even as god for christ's sake has forgiven you as I mentioned, we've been talking about uh, overcoming offenses. Turn your Bibles to two different uh, openings, uh, Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 17. We've talked about some different things about what forgiveness is. We looked at the Old Testament example of Joseph, who in many ways is the type of Jesus in his forgiving his brothers who sold him into slavery, and how that he was exalted to be prime minister of Egypt and saved his family as a result. And, uh, and some of the characteristics, some of the, uh, uh, the points... That are, that are brought out by the Scripture of Joseph's method of, uh, of forgiving his brothers is, uh, is very instructive to us, not only how we are forgiven, but also how we are to forgive. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about end-time events, and uh, the disciples have asked him, you know, what, what's the sign of your coming? When are these things going to take place, meaning the destruction of the temple and, and so forth? And, uh, and Jesus uh, makes some interesting points. A lot of them, you know. He talked about wars and rumors of wars, uh, earthquakes and famines and different things like that. But notice in verse 10, he said, "And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another and shall hate one another." He speaks of many false prophets arising. And deceiving many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, this love that he's talking about, this word that's used in the Greek is the word agape, which always is used for the love of God. Now, don't get me wrong about this. The word agape is used throughout Greek literature. So, every time the word agape is used, it does not mean the love of God. But every time the Bible is talking about the love of God, it uses the word agape. And so when if the fact that Jesus uses a word that's, uh, that he knows is going to be identified with the love of God, he's got to be talking about believers. He's not talking about the love of the world waxing cold. He's talking about the love of believers. So he says, let's start again in verse 10, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and hate one another. Notice offenses are a sign of the end. And many false prophets shall arise, and, many sh- and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, because sin shall abound. The love of many shall wax cold, but he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now look with me over to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is also talking about things regarding um, Christian life, not necessarily the end times. But notice what he says about that which is to come. Verse 1 of chapter 17 of Luke. Then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. Folks, you can pray, you can believe God, you can do anything and everything you can think of. Offenses are still going to be out there. You're still going to have the opportunity. You're still going to be faced with offenses. So you might as well face up to the fact, it's what we choose to do with them that makes the difference, not whether or not they come. So he says, it's impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast and be cast into the sea, than he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves, if your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him, and if he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times a day turn again to you, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. This is tough for the disciples, so they say, Lord, increase our faith. How are we going to do this? It's going to take something more than what we've got. Well, it's good that they recognize, first of all, that that forgiveness is by faith, not by feelings. So they're on the right track. And then Jesus tells them how it works. He said, it works through the things that you say. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the tree, be plucked up by the roots and cast into the sea. Forgiveness starts with your words. But folks, notice very simply, Jesus is saying, offenses are going to come. So if when they come, deal with them. Don't let them fester, don't let them hang around, deal with them. Now, there's two words that are used in the, um, uh, in the New Testament for offenses primarily. And, uh, and those words are, are very similar, but there is a distinction between the two. The word that's used for uh, offend or offense in Matthew chapter 24 is a word that means snare. It means a trap. But this word that's used here in Luke chapter 17 and verse 1, this word for offense means the bait that you put in the trap. So you need to realize offenses are designed to bait you into the devil's trap. Let me read to you from 2nd Timothy chapter 2 what Paul said to Timothy as a minister about what his job was, what all ministers jobs are. And not just for ministry, this is true for everybody. Verse 24 it said, "And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient" In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. See, people are in tr- tough places because they're working against themselves. They think it's the devil working against them, but it's really them that have been trapped by the devil. Instructing in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. There's something they don't see. People are trapped because of what they don't see. The Bible says in Proverbs that the trap is laid in vain in the sight of the bird. What does that mean? That means if you know where the trap is, anybody can can avoid it. We step into traps that we don't realize are there or that we don't realize are traps. That's what this is talking about. If peradventure, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. Notice God's not the one that recovers you. God's not the one that gets you out of your trap. You get you out of your trap and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Another translation says, many other translations say they're taken captive by him to do his will. In other words, when you're trapped, you're operating according to the bait that the devil set for you, and you're doing what he wants you to do rather than what the God wants you to do or what the Word says to do. And that's where the repentance comes in to the acknowledging of the truth. If we don't acknowledge that we're doing something contrary to what the Bible says, then we're stuck in the trap thinking we're justified all the way. Now turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. We just saw when we started in Ephesians chapter 4, we saw that our actions, our words, and uh, the condition of our heart hard-hearted versus tender-hearted, has a lot to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by operating contrary to the love of God, forgiveness, and, and so forth. Now, grieving the Holy Spirit doesn't mean He leaves you. It means you're not sensitive to what He's doing. If we've lost a loved one and we're grieving over their loss... It, it affects, it, it, uh, it invades other areas of our lives. We'll find ourselves sometimes crying over the loss of that loved one. We're doing things not even thinking about it, and all of a sudden it, it overwhelms us. It takes our, foc- our focus, it takes our attention, it takes our efforts away from other things that we might be focusing or attending on. Right? Right? Well, when it says you grieve the Holy Spirit of God, it means that too spiritually. It means we lose our focus. We lose our spiritual attention. We lose the benefit of what the Holy Ghost is wanting to and trying to do in our lives because we've grieved Him through hard-heartedness, through bitterness, and so forth. Now... We've talked about offenses from the standpoint of forgiveness and, and uh, what it is and how it works and what it really is and what about forgiving and forgetting and some of the other characteristics like that. This morning I want to give you a, a little different wrinkle where f- uh, offenses are concerned. Mark chapter 4, um, well, I really don't want to, to read the whole thing. Let me, uh, let me start off with, uh, with verse 2 and we'll read the parable and then just pick out the part that's, uh, that applies to us this morning for the sake of time and he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his dark doctrine hearken behold there went out a sower to sow and it came to pass as he sowed some fell by the wayside and some of the fowls of the air came and devoured it up and some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth but when the sun was up it was scorched and because it had no root it withered away And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. Verse nine, and he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, folks, verse nine is the key to everything. The ground that he's talking about are types of people. The word or the seed that the sower sows is the word. He explains some of that. The disciples are asking him, What does all this stuff mean? Well, Jesus begins to explain. The part that we want to see is in verse 16 and 17 because it's talking about the stony ground. Before I read that, let me make a couple of comments. He speaks of four types of ground. Only one of the types of ground produce fruit. Only one-third of that one-fourth produce hundredfold fruit. Now, one-fourth is 25%. One-third of that is 8%. Jesus is saying there's going to be about 8% of the people that are going to hear the Word and produce what the Word intends for them to produce. 75% of them aren't going to produce anything. 25% will produce something. 8% will produce maximum yield. We'll get the most out of the Word. We'll get everything out of the Word that, that they possibly can. They will be devoted to it. And, folks, everything about which type of ground you are or I am or anything else has to do with your decision, your determination, your attitude toward the Word doesn't have to do with God picks this one and doesn't pick that one. It has everything to do with the choices that we make. So verse 16, Jesus is explaining to the disciples about the stony ground. He said, these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness and have no root. The word root literally is the word moisture. They have no moisture in, them, in themselves. That means they don't continue to feed on the word. They heard it once and it sounded great. They liked the the, the uh the preaching that they heard about healing being, being available to us and belonging to us. They like the fact that God will supply our needs. They like the benefits that they heard that the Bible is supposed to produce and provide for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. But they don't stick with it. Now, let me pause here for just a moment, too. Um, how do I say this? I want to say this in the right way. I don't want to put anybody else down because I'm not anybody else's judge. There are a lot of different people that do a lot better job of um, making it easy for people coming into the things of God. I, 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 as far as I'm concerned, the fact that God made me a pastor shows that God has a sense of humor <laughs> because I don't give people warm, fuzzy feelings, and I, I just marvel at some of the guys that can do this. I marvel at pastors that can just make everybody feel so warm and at home and and inviting about everything. And I just look at that and I think, wow, how in the world do you do that? Well, I've discovered in 57 years, I can't do that. I've tried and it's not me. It comes across so insincere. It's just not me. It's just not the way God made me to be. Some people just have it. Other people like me just don't. And unless I'm missing something, the people like me that don't, can't get it. Because I've tried. But folks, the reality is this. No matter how good somebody makes you feel about things, no matter how good somebody makes you feel about your situation, there's only one thing that can change your situation, and that's the truth of the Word. No matter how you feel about it, the only thing that can ever make a difference in our lives for good is the Word of God. And there's only one way to make that work on your behalf, and that's to jump in the deep end. This ease your toes into the cold water and and walk in gently and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing to me how some people can get people to do that. But so many times the people that make it inviting to get into the edge of the water never wind up getting into the whole thing. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you can't go halfway and expect results. If the Word is going to produce in your life, it's going to be because you jump in the deep end. Now, folks, we're the master of jumping in the deep end around here. And for some people, it's such a shock when they jump into the deep end into the cold water. It's like uh, it freaks them out, and they run for cover. But the only thing that can ever make a difference in your life, a lasting difference in your life, is the Word. No matter how you feel about it. No matter how somebody makes you feel about it. It, um, We live in an information age. But I've noticed that there's not too much wisdom out there among all the information. (laughs) And here's the difference. The information age means that there's a lot of places you can go to find out what the dots are. But it's wisdom that connects the dots. I've got to be careful how much political stuff I listen to, because there's lots of dots revealers out there. But nobody knows how to connect the dots. And it's frustrating. I see that spiritually. There's a lot of information. We have never lived in a day like today where there is so much information from the Word. We had, uh, we had a call from somebody not too long ago, and, uh, and they said, well, do you guys offer certain types of counseling? And the response was, you can get on a website 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and hear what the Word of God says about your situation or any situation that you're in. What better counseling can you have than that? Now, that may not be me at your beck and call making you feel good about your situation. Patting you on the back saying, you know, honey, I understand. I'm not real good at that anyway. But it's the Word, and only the Word that can ever make the difference. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, here's how not to be stony ground. Jump in the deep end. Okay. Verse 16 again, and these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness but they have no root or moisture in themselves. They don't continue to feed on the word in other words, to water the word and so endure but for a time. Now what causes these people to turn loose? Afterward when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake immediately they are offended. So, if we know the defenses are the snares and the bait that the devil uses just to trap you. And Jesus is telling us that this is what causes people to be offended. He mentions two things. He says afflictions, that means hard places, that means circumstances. That means things not working out the way you wanted them to. Has anybody experienced that? (laughs) The second is persecution. That means people pursuing you. That means people doing things against you. He said, those are the two things that will cause you, cause a person who is not tenderhearted, who has not given themselves to the word, who is not doing what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, so that we don't grieve the Spirit of God. He's saying, this is what will block fruit from being produced in your life. This is what will block you from the the blessings of God that that the Bible says are yours, the Bible promises you. It's what will block you from walking in the love of God. It's what will keep you from being an example of what the Bible says already is yours. Affliction and persecution. Now, there's a lot of things you can get offended about. In the present day you can get offended about, well, why did they get a promotion I didn't? I work harder than they do. I know what they're really like. They're just playing politics in the office. There's no way they deserve it better than I am, or uh, but more than I do. That's an, you can allow that to become an offense. You can allow it to become an offense because you lose your job and somebody else doesn't. You can allow yourself to be offended because your car breaks down and somebody else's never does seem to break down. You can allow yourself to be offended because things don't work out for you the way you look at somebody else and think it works out for them. There's all kinds of things that you can get offended about. You can get offended because your kids aren't following God like your neighbor's kids. And you're a lot better parent than they are. There's all kinds of things you can get offended about. And every one of these things that we could mention and spend all day long and never exhaust it talking about and referring to, every one of these things are circumstances that are designed by the devil to bait you into getting offended so he can stop the things of God from working in your life and get you to do what he wants you to do rather than what the Bible says. The other side of that is unforgiveness. People could persecute you. People could come against you. People could do things against you that would cause you to take a position where you think you're justified, you may have every right to hold the position, hold the thoughts, and hold the attitudes that you're holding, and stick, your, stick to your guns, hold your ground, but you're doing things contrary to the Bible. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, it says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and its contentions are like the bars of a castle. Now we look at that and we think, oh yeah, it's tough for the other person. If they're offended, it'll be tough for us to reach them. Folks, you could be the brother that's offended. Or the sister. And it's very simply saying this, that when we're offended, when we allow something to offend us, sometimes people get offended at God. Why am I being attacked with sickness? Do I not serve God more than most people? You can get offended at that. Why is this happening to me? Why, it doesn't, why doesn't it happen to the other guy? Why does stuff like this always seem to come against me? You can get offended at God. You can get mad at God and say, God, I don't understand this. Why is this happening to me? Well, why not you? Every time I find somebody that's offended in one of those situations, and folks, if you, know, if you want to know who they are, just look around. Because, in my opinion, the vast majority of Christians are holding some kind of offense. And that offense does one and only one thing, and it changes the way you see yourself. Therefore, it changes the way you see other people. It can change the way you see God or change the way you see His Word. How many times have we seen people extend their faith, or at least they thought they were, toward receiving healing, and it doesn't work in the time frame that they allotted... And so they get offended, and they say, well, that's it. I guess healing's not for everybody. And who do they get mad at? They get mad at God, and they get mad at the preacher that told them the Word says it belongs to them. And so what do they do? They go through life, finding other people that will agree with them. Yeah, those people that preach healing. They're just, taking, they're just giving people false hope. Yeah, called the Bible. They're just giving people false hope. They're doing a disservice and God will judge them. And so what do they do? They stand in judgment. And it changes the way they see themselves. It changes the way they see the word because they read it, in the word for themselves. So now they have to take the position that, well, I guess not everything belongs to me. That the Bible says. Well, if one scripture doesn't belong to you, how do you know one other does? What are we left with? Nothing in the Bible belongs to us. Then how do you know you're saved? Folks, it's either all true or it's all a lie. There's no middle ground. None whatsoever. And these are the offenses that people take through life. And they carry these offenses and it changes their perspective. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 3. Let me show you what I mean by this. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus uh, gave certain uh, messages to the churches before he told what was going to happen during the tribulation period. They're just as much a part of the revelation of Jesus as the the end time events that are recorded beginning in chapter 4. I want you to see in Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14 what Jesus said to the Laodicean church. Because it's, it's exactly what happens to us. This can be an example to us if we don't deal with and overcome offenses the way the Bible says we should. Notice in verse 14, it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, in the the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. So they're doing something. I know your works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would thou wert cold or hot. Now, folks, if that doesn't describe the majority of the American church today, what does? You've got the majority of the American church trying to justify or identify whether what they're doing is okay with God or not. You've got the majority of the American church having arguments about whether or not one thing or another is sin. When the Bible says it is. I I met somebody in a restaurant the other day. A real nice couple. One of the first things they wanted to talk to me about was our stand on homosexuality. Now, of all the things to talk about, that's the one to bring up, wouldn't you think? <laughs> but that's what got their attention. They've heard things that we've said. They know people that are in that situation. Somebody that had a daughter that was gay, or something like that. I don't remember the story. But anyway, and, and not, I'm not I'm criticizing the couple whatsoever. That people have questions. I get it. I understand. But why is that an issue? Is the Bible not clear enough on that? I mean, God said that it was a grievous sin. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that was the Old Testament. So, God's changed? Well, then that means the part that God said, I'm God, I change not, can't be true. Folks, God's the same today as He's always been. God will always be the same. If it was a grievous sin under the Old Covenant, it's a grievous sin under the New Testament. Now, is it a sin that causes somebody to go to hell? No. Some people get mad at that. Oh, I want those homosexuals to go to hell. They deserve it. But you don't (laughs) because of what you've done. Thank God the blood of Jesus doesn't give us what we deserve. It gives us what God wants us to have. (laughs) Folks, there's only one sin that causes people to go to hell, and that's rejecting Jesus. Period. Yeah, but how can somebody be a Christian and a homosexual? How could somebody be a Christian and a liar? How could somebody be a Christian in an adulterer? You go to Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see that Paul says, Stop doing all that stuff. Stop stealing. Christians must be stealing. Stop lying. Christians must be lying. He said, Quit having adultery. Christians must be having adultery. He doesn't say, You're on your way to hell. He said, Stop it. Why? Because it's sin. Why do we argue about things that the Bible says? Yet that's where most of the church is, and that's why we're neither cold nor hot. And Jesus said, Pick your side. Either way is better for me. Cold is better than lukewarm. Hot certainly better than lukewarm. Verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Notice he does not say, I will send thee to hell. He says, I'll spew you out of your mouth. What does he mean? He means you'll be the thorny ground or the stony ground that doesn't produce fruit. You'll be hindered. From producing fruit in your life. Why? Because for some reason you've become offended at the word of God. Either through affliction or persecution you've become offended at the word of God. So that you're you're in the middle of the road where the Bible is concerned. Well we don't want to be too much of a sinner. But we don't want to be a religious fanatic either. So we'll just be right here where nobody knows who we are. Now that will get them saved. Be like them. That's what always draws them in. So he said, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now what was their problem? Please notice verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now remember we read over in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only that which ministers grace to the hearer and grieve not the Holy Spirit." Now we see that what they're saying and what their attitude is, is what's grieved the Holy Spirit to keep them from being fruit-producing Christians. "'Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing.' But here's the real condition, that's how they saw themselves, but here's how God saw them. "'And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked.'" Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, but those seem to be two opposite positions. They're saying here's how we see ourselves we are so with it. The world respects us, we don't offend anybody in in our positions. We're politically correct, spiritually. We're blessed. We've got it together. We're respectable. God says, you don't see. You don't recognize that you're poor, you're miserable, you're wretched, and you're naked. I may have left something out in there. I'm not sure. He said, you're exactly the opposite of what you think you are. Now, what in the world caused them to see themselves wrongly? What would cause us to see ourselves differently than the way that we really are? Folks, there's only one thing that does that, and that is if you've been taken in the snare of the devil so that now you're doing your will. They think they're doing the will of God, but they're really doing the devil's will. What is the devil's will? To take the position that we have got it all together. Why? Why is that trapped by the devil? Because if you think you've got it all together, you're not trying to find out what the Bible says about how you should live otherwise. One of the greatest traps that the devil sets is complacency. Now, folks, there's a difference between being content and being complacent. Paul said, I've learned to be content. But he was never complacent. He never stopped growing. He never stopped pursuing the things of God. He came to the place where he accepted. These are the circumstances. Fine, I'll deal with them. They're not comfortable. They're not always pleasant. But I've learned in whatever circumstances I am, I am in to be content because I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what he's saying is I've learned to be content with the circumstances because Jesus' power always is available and always works for me. In other words, I can always put the Word to work. So I can be content. Whether things are good or whether things look bad, I can be content. But he was never complacent. He never got to the place where he stopped moving forward, where he stopped examining himself to put the Word of God to work in his life. Now, how do you change that? If you find yourself in that position, if you're in a lukewarm place in your life, what do you do? How do you change that? How do you start looking at yourself with the right point of view? Let's keep reading. Jesus gives them the answer. Verse 18, he said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And then he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. What's he saying? He's saying, this is his chastening. You need to buy gold from me that's tried in the fire. Now turn back with me a couple of pages to 1 Peter chapter 1. while you're turning there, let me explain to you how gold is purified. In the old days, gold would be purified. They didn't have some of the furnaces that they have now, and so the processes were a little bit different. But in the old days, uh, in Bible days, certainly, gold was ground into a powder. And that powder was then mixed with something called flux, So what we'd call today flux. I don't know what they called it back then. And and, and, And what happens, gold is a real soft material, soft metal. And so the only thing that makes gold hard is if you mix it with other metals. But if you want pure gold... Then you gotta get rid of the other metals. So that's what you do. You take the, you take the gold or the, the mixture, the metal mixture, and you grind it into powder. Then you mix it with this powder called flux. And then you heat it all up. Now the flux causes the other metals to be drawn to it, and then that creates what's called dross. And then they, uh, they, you know, pull off the dross from the top, and what you're left with is pure gold. There's a problem with that because when Jesus says Count, he, I counsel you to buy gold for me, tried in the fire, that means a couple of things. That means, number one, being ground into powder. Now, I don't care what spiritual context you put that in, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> the second thing is being heated up till you melt. I can't find a lot of expectancy, you know, joyful expectancy in that one either. Yet that's exactly what the Bible says, because the afflictions is the powdering, is the, is the grinding up, is the, the heating process of our lives. That's why James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, test trials and afflictions. Knowing this, you're being purified like gold. That's not what he says. He says, the trying of your faith, work is patience. But that's what the result is, that we're purified like gold. We learn through trouble. I don't want to learn that way, Pastor Mike. I want to learn through success. Okay. Well, there are times where we can. But that's like saying, I want to learn to be a bodybuilder without going to the weight room. I don't want to sweat. I don't want to exert any energy. I just want to have big muscles. Well, there's a way you can do that. You can inject yourself. But guess what? That doesn't turn out well. All kinds of things happen when people take drugs and stuff like that. To supplement or substitute for the hard work of making yourself stronger. Spiritually it works the same way. You cannot inject yourself. There is no injection. You can make yourself look like it. But there is no immediate fix or instant way to make it happen. The only way it's going to happen is you going through life experiences. And some of those are going to be tough. That's why James said here's how you learn to handle it. Count it all joy. It's not joy but count it all joy. When you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, you are being ground to powder and purified like gold. Did you find First Peter yet? First Peter chapter one. Let's start reading in verse three. He said, "Blessed be the Lord and Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The word temptations means chest, trials, and afflictions. That the trial of your faith, what are we rejoicing about Peter? That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold. Peter uses the same example by the Holy Ghost that Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3. That the trying of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your salvation, into your faith even the salvation of your souls. What's he saying? He's saying. That when we count it all joy, when we fall into diverse temptations, when we go through test trials and afflictions, when people are speaking against us, when circumstances have given us opportunities to be snared by the devil into offenses, he's saying when we handle those things spiritually, when we handle those things according to the Word of God, here's what results. God doesn't care anything about real gold as far as we're concerned. The gold that he's speaking of is the glory of God realized in our lives. What's he saying? He's saying when you refuse to be offended and put the word to work instead when you refuse to, be, to to enter into unforgiveness and put the Word of God to work instead you manifest the glory of God now here's the problem it doesn't feel like the glory of God it feels like we're accepting defeat it feels like we're letting somebody do something to us again and again and again and again and again, and again. And that's why we talked for the last several weeks about what does forgiveness really mean. Does it mean forgetting? Does it mean opening yourself up and letting somebody take advantage of you over and over again? What does it really mean? We found out that the Bible says it means a lot of different things than what people say it means in the church world. But let me show you where the glory of God is realized. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 7. Let me show you how it works. How many of you want the glory of God in your life? How many of you just want the glory of God in church services? There is a difference. It's easy to come to church services and have the glory of God manifest and go home and just feeling wonderful, just having goosebumps and, and, and seeing all th- kinds of great things happen. It's a different thing to have the glory of God manifest in, in your life. And unfortunately, you've got a lot of charismatics that are running from church to church trying to find it in the church service and are not giving any attention whatsoever to having it manifest in their lives. In other words, they see themselves differently than God sees them. They are operating like the Laodicean church. Acts chapter 7 is where um, Peter is giving his defense. Um, Maybe we should back up a little bit. Stephen is one of the, um, the seven that are chosen. Let me start reading in chapter 6, verse 8. We'll read a couple of verses in uh, the 6th chapter to get the, um, uh, the context of what's being said, and then we'll skip over to chapter 7, pick out a couple of verses there. Verse 8, Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. There, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyreneans, and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. I love that verse of Scripture. They couldn't resist his wisdom or his spirit. Those are two different things. Not just what he said but how he said it. The spirit that he delivered the things of God, the truth of the word. And they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, folks, here's what happens with people that are contrary to the things of God and are going to fight against God no matter what. They'll lie about what you said. Here's the way the devil operates. He operates this way in the church a lot, too. Among those who have been snared by him... Among those who have chosen to be offended at the truth of the Word, the affliction or the persecution has arisen for the Word's sake, and so they allow themselves to be offended. So what do they do? They start speaking out against everybody that preaches the truth or what they think is untrue. It's the way the devil operates. It shouldn't be a surprise when people speak against you. It shouldn't be a surprise when people lie about what you say. Are you out there? it's the way the devil works. If people aren't lying about what you say, I'm wondering what are you saying? You must not be making waves with anything relative to the truth of God's Word. Now I'm not saying go try to pick a fight so that you can say, hey people are talking against me. But right on the other hand shouldn't something happen along the way where people know what you believe about the truth of the Word? I think so. Okay, so they stirred up men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon them and caught them and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, liars, we have heard him say that the Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw that his face as it had been the face of an angel. Can I ask you a question? How does Luke know? How does Luke know that? Was he there? We don't have any record that Luke was there whatsoever. How could he be in the council? How could he be in this religious council? How could he know that they looked at Stephen and saw the face of an angel? How could he know? There's only one possible answer, and that is that if the people that came out of the council after all this was over said, you know, when we looked at him, it was like his face was an angel's face. It had to have been reported for Luke to tell us by the Holy Ghost. So Stephen begins his defense. He talks about Abraham, he talks about Moses, he talks about Joseph, he talks about Moses and children of Israel being delivered from uh, from Egypt, he talked about the law of Moses, he talked about uh, everything about the history of uh, um, the Jewish people up until his time. And then he said, um, well let's start in verse 47, but Solomon built him a house, he's worked his way up to Solomon now in the Jewish history. This is chapter 7, verse 47. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophets. Here's what the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? Now here's what Stephen does. Stephen, a man full of faith, a man full of power, a man full of wisdom, a man full of the the Spirit of God. Stephen then looks at him and says... I just want you to know I love you so much. You folks don't understand what you're doing. I get that. Notice notice the next verse. Notice verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do you. Can I ask you a question? Where's the love? (laughs) Is he sinning? Is Stephen sinning in what he's doing? Is there any sin in recognizing who people are, what motivates them, and what they're really about? Any sin in that whatsoever? Not according to Stephen's example. Well, then there must not be for us either. It's not a sin to recognize what's going on, folks. That's why we spent the last several weeks talking about what forgiveness really is according to what the Bible says versus according to what religious people say that it is. Because this syrupy sweet, never stand up for what's right, that's not the love of God. That's not what forgiveness always does. There are times when forgiveness keeps his mouth shut and overlooks something, but that's not always the case. And this idea of forgive and forget. Forgiveness doesn't mean forget, because if you forget... Jesus didn't even say it. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, we read it earlier, he said if somebody trespassed against you and asked for repentance seven times a day, do it. He didn't say forget that it happened. He didn't say realize, you know, act like, oh, well, it, it wasn't really an offense. Well, of course it was an offense. That's why you have to forgive. Having your eyes shut and your head buried in the sand is not the love of God. The love of God sees things for what it is. It judges things rightly, but it judges things according to the word. It recognizes here's the situation, but here's what the Bible says to do about it. It doesn't ignore the situation and say, well, let's just all walk in love. That's not the way it works. Jesus stood up to the Pharisees and said, you're a bunch of vipers. Where's the love? Folks, that was the love of God for him to point out what was going on. So Stephen follows that example. He says, You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And have they slain them, and, and they have slain them which showed them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers? You're the one that murdered Jesus. How do you think he expects this to turn out? (laughs) Of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers of the prophets as well as Jesus, who have received the law by disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now folks please understand what that last phrase means. It means they ran on him and bit him and tried to tear his flesh with their teeth. Now the council are the religious people. This is how religious people act when they are confronted with the truth that they can't resist. They are willing to kill you even if they have to bite you to death. (laughs) And there is a spiritual application in that too. The Bible says beware if you bite and devour one another you will be devoured yourselves. Now that is talking about spiritually but here is a pretty good example of how that works. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. What's Jesus standing up for? I thought he was seated at the right hand of God. What's he standing up for unless he's ready to come help Stephen get out of that mess? Then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast them out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Here's what the love of God does, folks. Here's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness recognizes things for what they are. And chooses, based on the circumstances, based on the situation, chooses to take a position that's godly. To take a position that's in line with the word. Let me show you another place. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll close with this one. There's a lot more that we could say here, but we'll just let this stand for itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. They had their own issues that were many But notice what he says. He's talking about Christian relationships and, and uh, uh, things like that. Beginning in verse 1, he said, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? What he's saying very simply is, wait a minute, why are you Christians going to the law of the world rather than dealing with these things among yourselves and among the church so that we can keep it in house. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's talking about financial things. He's talking about monetary stuff. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? In other words if we are going to be able to judge the angels one day shouldn't we be able to judge rightly between contract issues and legal matters? If you then have judgments of things pertaining to this life set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. In other words he's saying this stuff should be handled by any Christian. I mean the baby Christians ought to be able to handle this kind of stuff. I mean the lowest person in the church, the people that you think are the most uneducated they ought to be able to handle this kind of stuff. Why? Because the love of God should rule. You know what the, the greatest um, problems in, in court is? divorce court. You get Christians in there, they will kill one another. We've got some uh, well, at least one divorce lawyer in the church, and she, she'll, she'll tell you stories. It's unreal. It's absolutely unreal. Why? Because people get in court, they let offenses build up, they take things to such a position that they are willing to absolutely destroy each other. Counseling, marriage counseling is a real blast. (laughs) Because usually what it comes down to is it comes down to two people both trying to convince me that they've married the Antichrist. (laughs) Only one time has that ever been the case, that in my experience... Verse 5, Paul says, I speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? Wisdom should be able to handle things between Christians. No, not one that shall be able to judge between brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong?" Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong. And defraud and that your brethren. What's he saying? He's saying we ought to be able to fix these things between two people that are filled with the love of God. Now folks, you know situations arise as well as I do where you've got people that are pretending to be Christians, people that come into the church for the purpose of taking advantage of other believers. Because Christians are the most gullible people on the face of the earth. And the reason for that is because they've got this false idea, this false sense of what the love of God is supposed to do. Most people, most of the church world thinks that that walking in love means you've got to be a doormat. Jesus was never a doormat. But there were times where he kept his mouth shut. There were times where he accepted wrong being done to him. And that's what the love of God does, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying you don't have a right to go to church, he's not denying that. Certainly you have a right to go, I said to church, you have a right to go to court you have a right to, to exercise your legal rights and your legal position. You have a right to do that. But why, if you're dealing with believers, if you're dealing with another person that should be in, interested in walking in the love of God and doing what's right too, he said, why wouldn't you handle those things among yourselves? Even if it means you take it in the ear and say, okay, this isn't going to my favor, but I choose to accept it. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says this in the Amplified Version. It says, love does not insist on its own rights or its own way. It doesn't say love doesn't have its own rights. It says love doesn't insist on its own rights or its its own way. For it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of the evil done unto it and pays no attention to a suffered wrong. Now that's what the love of God does. That's what happens. And folks, there's a lot of times where offenses are concerned, where things happen, circumstances happen. I've had people come to me over and over and over again where they say, Pastor Mike, I just don't understand why this is happening to me. I just don't understand why this circumstance took place. I just don't understand why God allowed this. I just don't understand this, that, or the other. And I'll always, 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 rather than try to convince them of what the Bible says and God being on their side, I'll always... Lead them first to say, look, the Bible says this scripture is the answer. Let's get the answer first, and then you can get your questions answered later. Because what I found out is that if I can get somebody healed, if I can get somebody to receive their healing, then later on they don't have the problem. Later on they don't have the question. All this stuff that they're going to, bless God, I'm going to ask the Lord. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord. Well, he might have a couple of things to ask you. But this idea that God owes us an answer, that God owes us something other than the Word. Folks, the Word works in every situation. What else do you need? Yeah, but I just don't understand this. Well, join the club. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand, but it doesn't change the truth of the Word. So what are we going to do? We're going to stick with the things that we don't understand. We're going to spend the rest of our life asking questions, which a lot of Christians do. Well, I just don't understand. Well, grow up. There's a lot of things you'll never understand. But it doesn't change the truth of the word. And the word always gives you the answer. And sometimes the answer is to accept wrong done to you. Doesn't mean you got your eyes shut. Doesn't mean it's a character weakness or a character flaw. It means you choose to put the word of God first. And sometimes suffering wrong is the love of God in action. That's what Stephen did. Stephen looked at the people that were opposing him and recognized who they were. He said, you're stiff-necked people, you've always opposed the things of God, your fathers did, you're doing the same thing. And then when they began to stone him, he said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. He recognized what they were doing was a sin, but he said, don't punish them for it, Lord. Don't punish them. That's the glory of God in action in your life. That's what brings the glory of God to bear in your life. Paul talked about our light affliction. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, he said, our light affliction, which works for us an eternal weight of glory. We have temporary things, temporary circumstances that we deal with here, but if we handle them according to what the Bible says to do, it will work the glory of God out in our lives. And folks, nothing is worth, nothing is more important than the glory of God in your life. Trust me on that one. If you've never experienced that, then make that your goal because you can trust me on that. Nothing, nothing, no circumstance, things working out your way, nothing is more important than having the glory of God realized and revealed in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is always the answer. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to forgive to accept your word to be true, to choose to not be offended and see the glory of God realized in our lives. We thank you, Father, that that was the position that Jesus took. Rather than giving us the judgment and the penalty that we deserved, Jesus chose to sacrifice himself through our ignorance as well as our intentional wrongdoings. Thank you, Father, that that same love is shed abroad in our hearts. That we have the privilege to stand in faith, to overcome the afflictions, the temptations that beset us. And we have the opportunity to forgive those that have wronged us. Not with our eyes shut, but to recognize this is what love does. Father, we see That only acting according to your word releases us from the snare of the devil. I pray this day, Father, that you would open the eyes of each and every one of us so that we would see ourselves not from our own point of view, but see ourselves from the Bible point of view. That we might put your word to work. That we might walk in freedom and liberty. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.